So we get to the end of the program and we talk to the people running it and we're like, hey, so gonna make a follow-on investment, lead our seed round and you know, get this, get us going. And they were like, well, you guys are the best company. And so we, you know, I want you to know that we would have given you the money, but uh, we actually don't have it. <laughs> awesome. Great. Great. That's, that's, that's super awesome. Welcome to the Founders Journey Podcast. I'm Greg Moran. I'm Peter Dean. We're founders who struggle the same way every other founder does. Our goal is to let founders tell their own stories, the successes and the setbacks, the good stuff and the not so good stuff, sharing what it means to go on this entrepreneurial journey. This is part inspiration, part knowledge and learnings from everyday founders to make your journey a bit easier. Hi, welcome back to the Founders Journey podcast. I'm Greg Moran, uh, one of your hosts here with uh, Peter Dean, who's uh, the other one of your hosts. Uh, we're back from our, what is this, Peter? I think we called this our summer of 2022 hiatus. Is that- yeah, exactly. It's a long, yeah. it was a long summer. Yeah, we're into season two. We had a great summer. It lasted into, well, into March of the following year. It was great, but uh, but it was good times. Good, uh, really good, really good long summer break as we prepare for our next summer break. So uh, exactly. So welcome back. This is the podcast uh, for founders by founders and have another great founder on today that, uh, you know, we'll be sharing his insight, sharing his experience with us. Peter, you want to? Yeah. So uh, it's one of my good friends, Max. I met Max when he was a uh, Max Walker. I met him when he was a student at a local university here. He was starting off in his first journey in uh, a company called Windrush. So we have uh, had a lot of conversations of why you should join the ranks of the uh, EDC founders and follow this path of, you know, just never ending pain. So without, we'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) He can share some of his painful stories. Um, But Windrush uh, was purchased by Kinetic. He ran all... um, CTO or IT there, I believe. And then he since started Piton Labs and uh, we'll have Max explain what that is. So welcome, Max. I, I've been lucky enough to be on the sideline of, of the whole journey and heard kind of the stories and chatted with him. So I'm really excited to have him on today. Thanks, yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah welcome, just, Max. Just, just to be clear, I was not the CTO at Kinetic. They already had okay. a CTO. I was, the, I was VP of engineering because okay. they were a hardware company originally. And so their CTO was an electrical engineer. But uh, yeah, but we heard, we heard you were way better than the CTO. Yeah, the CTO that's was shitty and you were. You were he, was a way, he was a way better electrical engineer. I'll tell you that much. I do not know how <laughs> circuits work. Uh, Incidentally, but, in case that CTO is watching, I don't know who you are. Yeah, sorry. I DJ. did not hear anything. We're just joking with Max. We're totally kidding. So Max, uh, tell us what are you doing now, and like let's let's kind of walk back through your history because I know there's been uh, there's been some great stories and great learnings along the way. So tell us tell us what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, now I run a consultancy called Piton Labs. We work with early stage startups, which we define as like seed to Series B, roughly, in the tech industry, and basically help them build or fix their software products, uh, but also help them build out their team, their process, all that stuff that prevents you from going down in flames as a software company. And we are kind of unique in that our model is we get in, we build or fix what needs to get built, we hire who needs to get hired, and then we get out in such a way that hopefully you never have to hire anyone as expensive as us to help you ever again. Sort of the opposite of the more typical services model, where it's get somebody on the hook and see how long you can keep them on the hook, which is a lot of fun. Maybe not the strongest business model anyone has ever come up with, killing your own recurring (laughs) revenue, but it really focuses on what I love to do and what I think I do pretty well, which is working in the early stages of technology organizations and getting stuff built, shipped, figured out, ugly, scary ambiguity that exists at the beginning of the life cycle of a startup. What are the, what do you, what do you think? I mean, if you think about the companies that you work with, you've got a really interesting perspective, right? Because you're, you're dealing with startups. They're your client base, right? Before we get into your history, I'm just really curious about this. If, If you're talking to a founder that maybe doesn't have experience in tech or, um, you know, but wants to build their first tech platform, wants to build their first, you know, SaaS solution. What are the common areas where you see them struggle? What, what's your sort of advice to them? Yeah, it's funny because I think um, my opinion on this has changed a lot over the years. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But one of the things I think I see people do is if you are if you come from a technical background, you tend to overbuild. You build way too much product up front uh, relative to selling the product, talking to your customers, all the other parts that go into building a company. 
Um, so that was one of my failings personally, is that I was technical enough that when I got to decide what we spent time and money on, it was building stuff. I think when you get people who come from outside of tech or who are less experienced with technology and building startups, um, I think one of the biggest mistakes is bad hiring on the engineering side early, as well as focusing on capital raising and growth as a goal rather than a means to an end. Those are two very different problems, but the the one that we deal most directly with is that hiring one. Um, we see a lot of people who come in and they say, well, I got this resume from this person. They were at Google. They, that means they're really smart. They're going to be our lead engineer. Being a, an engineer at Google does mean you're really smart. It does not mean you're going to be a good startup engineer. I'm not saying it means you're not going to be a good right. startup engineer, but you are coming from a background where you have a massive amount of support, resources, and infrastructure, and you're going to be thrown into a place where it's like, build this as fast as we can. We don't know what it is. It's okay if it breaks. We just need to get it out the door. And that is the exact opposite of the way that people at these larger, more established tech companies work. Um, so there's a lot of mistakes that get made for very you know reasonable reasons, right? It seems like a good idea to hire someone who's an ex- ex, uh, you know, whatever principal engineer at Google, but it doesn't really work out that well in real life. And then that, that capital fundraising growth thing is, is a lot of people, when they get into the business of building a venture back startup, lose the focus on solving a customer problem, building a product and shipping it and start to focus on, especially at the early stages, growth and, um, and raising capital. And obviously those things are important, but if you, don't build a useful product, like no amount of VC backing, no amount of growth is going to actually help you because that growth will be temporary. Uh, people will stop using your product if it doesn't solve a real problem they have. I was just going to pile on on the uh, hiring a, the shiny objects. You know, we see all those like even on my side, which is the go to market side. Oh, someone was at, you know, Salesforce and marketing. But the world is so different for them than it is for us. We have to be so much scrappier. It's the same thing. Like they think, oh, they know they can help me. They're like all knowing or. They have some special power, um, but actually the special power is the people that work for the companies that no one's heard of, uh, because those are the harder. Well, it, I wouldn't say it's harder. It's just different environment. It's a different environment to work in. Different skill sets are built around working in a more starved environment for resources. So, Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, a couple of things you said there, Max, I think are, you know, it's, it's overbuilding, right? Is the, or, or like yeah. overdoing it, I guess is the theme, right? Whether you're overbuilding on the product side, you know, I come at this from the venture, you know, from the venture world and, you know, founder previously and now on the venture side and you see it all the time, right? Like the product, you know, they're just, there's so much functionality going in, right? There's so much, there's such a delay and just trying to get something to the market to, to start to test receptivity. And on the over hiring side, you see, I mean, we see it in every facet of an organization, right? Everybody wants the Google engineer. Everybody wants the meta engineer. And the level of support that that type of person requires, and again, nothing against them, sure, great engineers or whatever, but the level of support that that person is accustomed to, the level of support that that person is going to require is well beyond what most startups that are not based in Silicon Valley, for the most part, what, what most startups are really going to be able to do, right? And, and, and the reality is the return expectations that those individuals are going to have are really not what most startups, you can build a great startup with a five, six X kind of return, right? I mean, yep. you know, and, but you're probably not going to be the next meta. You're probably not going to be, you know, the next Google. And that's perfectly fine. You can have a terrific business that can make a lot of people really wealthy without that. I think that, I think that it's not just infrastructure supporting those early engineering hires. It's also ambiguity, right? So like, if you work at meta, you have a lot of people whose job it is to get you on the right page about what your goals are for the next day, week, month, quarter, right. year. Um, if you work at a startup as an early engineer, it's possible that like the CEO of the company doesn't even really know what's supposed to be happening, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> right. startups are an exercise in chaos. You're just all casting. I mean, especially at the early stage, you're all just casting, right. looking for product market fit. And so if you're used to people selling you, we need to build this feature because this enterprise customer asked for it six months ago and we've told them it'll be 18 months. And so we need to ship it. You know, like very, very different world from like, hey, uh, we just showed this to a couple of VCs and they all told us about this other company that already exists. So we're throwing it away and starting over. Uh, <laughs> but you're something right. new to start working on. That's um, right. Because the VCs know all. So, I mean, that's yeah. really yeah. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was hanging out with a friend of mine who's a VC this this weekend at South by Southwest, and he was wearing a VC Brags hat the whole time. And I was like, I can't tell if that's, I can't tell if that's like 
self-effacing or if it's like <laughs> over if it's like you know i don't know it, it was it was a little little uh little interesting but <laughs> you need one where's yours greg i don't know it's way too douchey i think <laughs> he, he, got, he got sent this for some tweet that he posted i think he posted some tweet and, he, and then somebody sent him this the, the vc braggs guy sent him this hat as like a <laughs> you know but anyway um that's awesome so you know, take, stepping back a little bit, how, how did you get into this, Max? I know you've had your your sort of founder's journey has been a, a, an interesting one. Kind of take us take us to what you were doing before uh, before Piton. Yeah, so immediately before Piton, I was doing a lot of with the same stuff that I'm doing now at Piton Labs, but just as a solo consultant, right? So um, I had had stints of consulting technology bits here and there throughout my career, you know, in between things, and there was a couple year period between my last startup and Python Labs, where I was just sort of like building products for startups, you know, advising startups, things like that. Um, it was really the same kind of work I'm doing now. And I really like that work fundamentally. Um, the reason that I actually ended up switching over and starting to build Python Labs was not that it was more lucrative or, or anything like that. In fact, it's the opposite, right? It's much harder and it's much more, uh, much less lucrative than solo consulting. Mm -hmm. But I kind of had gotten tired of the world of solo consulting where there's no trajectory, right? I mean, you right. just you just keep doing the same thing for clients over and over and over again. Um, not that they're not, not that you're not working on interesting projects, but there's no marker, no yardstick of success, progress, movement mm -hmm. there. Um, you only raise your hourly rate so much before you're just, it's just, that's it. So right. um, to me, Piton Labs is a way to build build a company, which is something I'm very passionate about and work with startups without having to build a venture back startup, which was something I wasn't really in a position to be interested in doing, at least at that juncture, that moment. Um, and so I got to, I get to work with startups and I get to build a business, but I don't have to build a venture back startup, which is something that I have done in the past and have had mixed experiences with. And so it was sort of like a nice, a nice hybrid for me. And it was basically just building myself the job that I wanted to have. <laughs> but uh, before that, as uh, Peter briefly mentioned in the intro there, um, before that, I was uh, running engineering at a New York City-based, I would call them an IoT startup, but they're really more of a logistics or like uh, insurance tech startup at this point. Um, so basically, they uh, the company's called Kinetic. They build a physical device, looks about the size of an old school pager. Actually, I have one on my desk, which I'm definitely not supposed to have because I haven't worked for them in a really long time. But um, <laughs> so they built this device. Uh, I'm assuming it looks a little bit different now because this one is like, whatever, six years old. But um, it goes on your uh, belt of a worker in a warehouse and it um, monitors all kinds of safety and risk characteristics. They collect a huge amount of data and then they process it. And so that was a really cool experience for me because I'd worked at startups before I'd, I'd um, you know, worked at early stage companies and everything like that, but I'd never worked at a company that was making a physical product. It made me so grateful for being a software guy. Every time that I talked to them about the, the building, the physical product, the amount of times it's like, uh Oh, somebody's got to fly to China tonight to get in an argument with someone in person. Cause they're not picking up the phone, <laughs> you know, but like the CEO of that company would like get, like strip searched at the TSA every time he was going on site because he has like a box full of beeping nondescript devices in a Pelican case that he's carrying. <laughs> through. Like, you know, it's just, it's just a, it's just a, a interesting and much harder space to build in, you know, things are just expensive and slow in the hardware space. Um, and I came in there because they acquired my company, my previous company. And basically I stepped in and led software. And it was an interesting experience because as I said earlier, they actually already had a CTO. Their CTO was uh, come from, came from an electrical engineering background. So when they started out, they needed to design circuit boards and write firmware and stuff like that. But as they got to market, it became clear that really what they needed to do was like collect massive amounts of data, process it, present it to customers, all that kind of stuff. And they didn't really have um, a software practice as a company. I mean, they had like one person who could do a little bit of software and stuff like that. So I came in in that acquihire and I was originally like basically the only software engineer. And I built a team of like, I think it was like 10 by the time I left total, maybe a little, no, it was a little bit less than that. It was maybe more like six, but, um, but we, we grew that team, you know, quite a bit. We set up not just software, but processes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that was a really interesting experience because they were a little further along than my own company had been before. So they had um, in some respects, they had, progressed through a lot of the, the sort of hurdles that we had never cleared or never even encountered. Um, but on the other hand, like their software 
they basically hadn't been writing software. So like they, it was, it was totally greenfield and they hadn't figured any out how to do any of the stuff. So it was the stuff I knew how to do well, right? Like getting it off the ground going from zero to one in the software and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that was a really interesting experience for me. And it was a great team. It was awesome people. I think when I joined the whole company was like nine people. And I think now it's in the sixties or seventies. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting to, after having run a company and had the buck stop with me for a long time, it was interesting to uh, take a step back and get to be like, well, that's CEO's problem. I don't <laughs> I it's kind of a, it's kind of a nice thing once in a while, isn't it? To, uh, to take the, to take that bit of a break. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I mean, one of the reasons I often end up either consulting or running my own business is that I don't take direction from others super well, but there was a nice, it was a nice hybrid there where I was in charge enough that I didn't have to like, uh, argue with people about doing things the right way, but not so in charge that I had to fight every single fire that occurred full stop across the entire organization. That's right. That's right. So you, you, you say you, you said you got aqua hired, which usually indicates, uh, you know, something was struggling, you know, something, uh, wasn't kind of gelling in your previous, uh, you know, in your previous startup, the way that, yeah. uh, the way that you wanted it to be. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, Previously, I would say I got acquired when I was talking to people and they'd be like, oh, congrats. And I'd be like, no, not that kind of acquired. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I it's the same, a, but I didn't get to buy a boat or anything. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just basically got a job out of the deal. like, uh, and, I, and I kept my investors from losing more money than they otherwise would have. Basically, I think, um, honestly, in order to, to get to what was really the issue with the company that I was running before that, the one I started that um, Peter mentioned, Windrush, like, I think we need to go back a little bit to sort of how that company yeah. came to be and that whole whole trajectory through that company. You know, I've, I've looked back on that experience and I've thought, what would I have done differently to avoid it not working out? And I think that the answer is basically nothing from any point that's a reasonable point to sort of Monday morning quarterback it from, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have to go back to basically the early origins of the company to really, you know, change what was uh, what we did wrong. So I started that company as a college student at Skidmore College. Um, it basically came out of like an independent study I was doing, um, which was partly because I was really interested in how to combine computer science and history. There's this thing called digital humanities where you use like computer science algorithms to study history, social sciences, whatever. Uh, and partly because I really wanted to not have to go to class very much and that you could get like five credits for just doing whatever you wanted if you could get an independent study approved. And it, it was technical enough that people couldn't call my bullshit on what I was actually building, um, <laughs> especially not the history department professor had to sign off on it. So I was building this thing that like, I mean, was not intended as a product. I mean, it was basically a toy, right? It was like a research project or something like that. And the school did a business plan competition and me and my two buddies who I lived with at the time were like, well, we should do this business plan competition. Um, they were both business. Well, one of them was a business major, one of them an econ major. And like, we should do this business plan competition. They're like, we'll write the whole business plan and everything like that. We need to have like a product. And only it really matters what the product is because it's just a business plan competition. So you're already, you've already built like three quarters of this thing, which <laughs> was very ill-defined at the time. Uh, why don't we just do that? I was like, okay, cool. Awesome. Sounds great. Um, they're like, okay, so, so, you know, one of them was like, it was like, you know, shotgun, one of them called CEO. The other one was like, going to be CFO <laughs> and I was CTO. And so we had this thing that was like a toy research project for history. And we we're like, okay, well, how is this a business? Uh, we'll sell it to libraries. You know, you know, who doesn't have any money libraries. But, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, I mean, you know, they collect like 10 cents when your book is late for a day. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Some, they're, they're rolling in pocket change. Yeah. <laughs> um, sell it to libraries and whatever. And, and we wrote up this whole business plan and it was a mess. And we did this pitch competition and we like, I wish I could say like, oh, and it went so well. And it was, you know, it was really a re- revelatory experience for us. And we realized that there was something real here and we just had to go, had to go make this happen, but it was actually the opposite. Basically, we got in there, we pitched this thing, we did, we talked to our business plan, and they were like, "Well, this is a stupid idea. Like, libraries <laughs> don't have any money. It's not clear what your product actually is. You guys have no idea how to run a business." And so we like didn't get past the first round of this business plan competition. We lost to like you know somebody baking cookies and like a you know person <laughs> making like you know spray painting on surfboards or something because it's because it's a liberal arts college and that's the kind right. of business that yeah. people are starting. Yeah. <laughs> and Instead of being like, oh, well, okay, we wasted, you know, 
10 hours of work or something. We basically took that as like a personal challenge, or at least I did. I don't really know how the other guys took it at the time, but they seemed to go along for the ride, which is, I was like, no, screw you, man. You know, I'm smarter than all these stupid cookie companies. I can do this. Um, so we built that business or started trying to, and really rapidly we were like, yeah, obviously selling stuff to libraries is a terrible idea. So we, we pivoted away from that, but we, we basically started a startup out of spite. Right. So that's, that's, that's mistake. Number one. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. I told you on that, but keep going. But uh, I don't think it's um, a mistake. No, I don't. I think but, at but, some level, that's how everybody starts. Yeah. Company, that's right? fair. FU, the FU factor. But, but, I, but I think, but I think that like, see the difference between like what I think you're describing and my experience is that this was like generalized spite. Like, I think that like, I think that like, <laughs> just, it was rage. It was really, yeah, I think rage. that highly specific spite can be a very useful motivator in business. Like, yeah, I hate Salesforce and I'm going to make a better Salesforce because I hate Salesforce. That's a great reason to start a business. I'm mad. And so I'm going to show everyone that I'm smart by starting a business is a bad motivation to start a business. <laughs> it doesn't give you clear goals, right? Cause it's like, and, and, and that was sort of part of it too, right? It's like, we didn't, we set out to start a startup. We didn't set out to start a specific startup. We didn't set out to solve a specific yeah. problem. We set yeah. out to start a startup. And so, you know, we got, we graduated school because we were seniors. We started doing this. We graduated school. We all, well, most of us went and got jobs. One of them was unemployable, but the, the other two of us went and got jobs. And we, uh, we were working on this like nights and weekends and whatever. And we figured out, okay, you can't sell stuff to um, libraries, obviously, and the stuff I was doing was sort of irrelevant and didn't really matter. So we, we pivoted everything to like, okay, we have this idea for like a tool that basically lets you build interactive uh, visual reports based on data. And so we'll build this, we'll sell it to, and we were like trying to think of who a market for this was. Uh, we'll, we'll sell it to uh, NGOs, big nonprofits, things like that. And to this day, I hold that that is a substantially better market than people think when they hear that term, mm -hmm. because actually nonprofit doesn't mean doesn't have any money. It no means money. they're yeah. legally obligated to spend all their money every that's right. year. That's right. um, so and if you can but, fundamentally help them, that's yeah. You know. um, so we, so we had this, you know, we had this thing, we started building it. We got about a year in and we raised some friends and family money for it. We quit, we quit our jobs and we all moved back to Saratoga. I was still living here, but everyone else had, had scattered and we all came back here. We hired one software engineer, a guy we knew from college and, and sort of started building this thing. We pretty quickly realized that we didn't understand how to go from like, we're going to build a thing to like, we're going to like raise money and, and right. do all this other stuff. I mean, we were able to raise friends and family money, but that's people who believe in you irrationally basically like fundamentally that's what that is right well they sort of have to believe in you like they don't really yeah. have a choice i mean exactly then they just become a crappy parent if they're like yeah son i just uh no yeah well, well my my parents were like i don't we don't have any money <laughs> like <laughs> other that's other other, right? other people's parents and uh yeah. and you know my father-in-law and a few other people like kicked in some money and and we you know and so we were like running this thing and we we're like okay well we what we need to do is we need to raise capital and because we need to be able to like actually build it out. We need to be able to grow it. We need to be able to do sales, whatever. We looked at, okay, how do we go from having no network, right? It was not like we went to Stanford and we can call up the, you know, Stanford angel right. network and say, whatever. How do we go from having no network being based in a place that at the time, because this is way pre-COVID, like there is no capital available in Saratoga Springs, New York. I mean, like mm -hmm. there is one angel group that exists in Eastern New York who we had- uh -huh extensive dealings with and then there's uh a venture fund in Ithaca at the time that was it start fast hadn't started hadn't even started yet um primary ventures had had already become primary ventures and moved to New York City there was no capital available locally yeah Greg knows um, I think he did that too yeah yeah that's how I ended up in Texas yeah exactly like no <laughs> but, I mean, but like but there's no capital available and I think what founders now don't get because I've talked to some younger founders that have like started companies recently is that like back in the day, it wasn't like, oh yeah, I'll just fly out to San Francisco, raise money and then come bring right. it back. It was like, they would be like, okay, well maybe we'll give you the money, but you're moving to yeah. the Valley or you're moving to New York or you're moving mm -hmm. to Boston. And so we were trying, we we're like, okay, well we can't convince people to even get meetings with us for the most part. Like we don't have the network, we don't have the connections. We'll do an accelerator because accelerators are, they'll get us connections. 
And we ended up doing this uh, somewhat crummy third tier accelerator. We applied to a whole bunch of them. It was, it was exactly like applying to college, which is was very, very uh, upsetting to me for that reason. But uh, we applied <laughs> to all these accelerators. We got into this, we got into a bunch, but they're mostly <laughs> bad ones. We got into this kind of crappy third tier accelerator started by this guy who does did have a solid entrepreneurial track record in tech, but it ends in 1993. And then the other managing partner is someone who had never, never done anything in tech for as far as I know. And so, and that was in Cleveland, Ohio. Cause it's like, oh, you can't raise money in upstate New York. So you should go to the tech capital of the world, Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> and we went out there and it, it was, it was rough. I mean, like, first of all, I almost got kicked out the first day. Cause I got in a fight with the managing director about something where I still hold that I was right. But like, I was smart enough to eventually give up when it was clear that he was going to just kick us out of the program. <laughs> on top of that, you know, they were supposed to have this follow-on capital available for companies. So we got, you know, like 50K or whatever it was from them as part of the program. They're supposed to have this fund to follow-on capital available. So we were like, the reason we picked this specific one is we're like, even if they don't have the connections to VC money, we can, you know, if they give us 250K and follow-on investment, that's that's the lead on a round, on a seed round at the time. Right. Um these numbers keep changing all, you know, yeah. for a while it was massive for a while people were doing $10 million seed rounds. Now they're back down to million dollar seed rounds. So, right. um, but um, we were like, okay, well that'll, that's, I mean, that's the turn of the flywheel. We need to get this moving. So we just need to be the, cause they'd only invested one or two companies each class. We're like, we just need to be the best company in the class. We don't need to outswim the shark. We just need to be better than all the other Cleveland, Ohio accelerator companies. <laughs> and, and we were, we were, I mean, not to speak ill of our fellow compatriots in that program, but like half of them had no business idea when they showed up. Many of them had no technical founder. Like there was like one or two that like kind of had some stuff figured out, but really not a venture backable business. There was like one company that had some potential basically other than us. So we get to the end of the program and we talk to the people running it and we're like, Hey, so going to make a follow on investment, lead our seed round and, you know, get this, get us going. And they were like, well, you guys are the best company. And so we, you know, I want you to know that we would have given you the money, but uh, we actually don't have it. <laughs> like, awesome. Great. Great. That's, that's, that's super awesome. And, you know, and, they, and it was Cleveland, Ohio. They didn't have connections to any actual investors. So that program, I mean, you got introduced to like one guy who was like a real VC and, you know, he was a real VC who was largely running uh, family office money and it was like mostly yeah. tapped out. And, you know, it was, and he wasn't, he wasn't leading anything anyway, because he was make, writing 25K checks and stuff. So we were like, oh, crap. And we were, at that point, we were basically out of money, too, because we just like spent all this time going to Ohio and trying to build this thing. And so we, we raised a little bit more friends and family money and some angel money. And we're like, okay, well, now what do we do? And apparently, we don't learn from our mistakes, because we were like, okay, well, the core premise of we need to do an accelerator was good. Let's just do an accelerator that doesn't suck. And then, and then we'll be fine. <laughs> and so we ended up getting connected to folks at Techstars and doing the Techstars FinTech Accelerator this following summer. So summer 2016. Yep. It, at this point, the, like the, the whole theme here through this whole rant that I've just had is that like, you've noticed I haven't talked a lot about like our customers or what, what problem we were solving. It's because we really weren't doing that stuff right. Like we didn't right. focus on the business. We focused on trying to raise money, on trying to grow on things like that yeah and and so by the time we got to tech stars it's like okay well, we have a product we don't have a market and we have not enough capital to like keep growing or anything like that and you know i honestly think that by the time we walked in the door at tech stars we were in really bad shape it was unlikely that the company was going to survive by the day that we got to tech stars um and you know, it really just goes back to that thing that I was talking about earlier about being overly focused on starting a startup, but not on yeah. the part where you're actually building a business. Um, and, and it's it's sad because we actually had customers. I mean, we did okay, especially when we were targeting the nonprofit NGO space, which we we pivoted away from because I was a fintech accelerator. So we were a fintech company now. But like we were, I mean, we were growing revenue, like, you know, 20% month over month on very small numbers, but still, you know, like decent growth and was self-service SaaS, so the margins were really good on the actual product, but 
we didn't, we, that wasn't what we were focused on. That's like not what we cared about. We we're trying to figure out how to raise venture money. Right. And it was really hard to raise venture money if you're selling nonprofits because a lot of VCs didn't get it. I think that's changed a little bit. There's a few people that invest in nonprofit tech now, but uh, at the time it was like, unless you could get money from one of the people that had worked on a few of the like political related things that had done really well, it was very, very hard to raise money for that industry. So yeah, I mean, we, we, we over-focused on the wrong things. We built a super, I think actually pretty good, super complicated product that didn't have a big enough market necessarily, or if it did, we didn't do a good enough job of selling it into that market. And then we, you know, over-focused on raising and on building, you know, a VC backed business. And it was really a tough, a tough experience. And then on top of that, the part that I sort of left out of this is that like, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of people underestimate the challenge of with startups is that um, the the co-founder dynamics and like working together with another person. <clears throat> so I started a company with two guys that I was very good friends with, one of whom was best man at my wedding, you know, things like that. But they were the people that were closest to me at the moment that I decided to start a company, which turns out is not the correct way to vet people who you're going to be running a business <laughs> right. with. Um, and they're nice guys and I still like them. And they both been very successful in their careers post that company, not running startups because that is not a thing that neither of them in, you know, I think both of them would say that they're not well-equipped to do that. It's not something that they enjoy doing. And so I started as CTO of this thing, but very rapidly became CEO because I was the only person who could like sell stuff to people and raise money, which is crazy because I was also the person who was writing all the code, hiring all the engineers. But, um, you know, you get thrown into the, the deep end of the pool and you figure it out pretty quickly if you have the right demeanor for it, I guess. But um, yeah. but yeah, so it was it was really challenging in general. And basically by the end of it, you know, there was a moment where we were getting near the end of Techstars, we we're going to do demo day and all this stuff. And I was literally talking to my wife and I said, uh, if this was the kind of job where I could quit, I would have quit a long time ago. I'm now at right. the point where I'm considering quitting, despite it not being the kind of job where I can quit. Like, and that's, you know, the acquire thing came out of finding like, okay, we're definitely not in a position for an actual acquisition, right? Like we don't have product market fit. We're not growing super fast, any of those things. Um, and we could probably raise more money. We could probably raise another angel round and keep limping, but like, I don't want to keep limping anymore. Like we, we have done this all wrong and it doesn't make any sense for us to keep limping forwards with this thing that we've mismanaged so badly rather than just take the mulligan and, and, you know, if we want to try again, we can try again. But yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. Uh, it turns out giving a million plus dollars to a bunch of 20 year olds is, has some effects that are not what you would hope. <laughs> but. Well, it's, you know, I mean, it's a great story, Max. And I think there's, you know, there's so much in there, right. That's, that's just incredibly relevant to, you know, so many startups, I think, you know, a couple of things that you said there, and um, I'm going to let Peter talk to the kind of knowing when the, when the end is the end, right? Because I think it's something that every founder struggles with. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit with our persona, right? It just doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't yeah it's really, it's, it's something that's hard as the, obviously you rose up as a CEO because I think your personality and who you are as a person I met long ago and still today it, it is that founder's kind of personality um which is unique it's sometimes uh we 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 like cause a lot of pain unnecessary pain and and damage uh especially in a scenario when you you won't it's hard to call it quits right yeah because you you're willing to fight and kind of what you said in the beginning you talked about like you spitefully came in like you need a lot of that chip on your shoulder to kind of run and deal with what happens. And I remember conversations with you uh, about like you were vacillating, like I can make so much more money. Why am I doing this to myself? I, I'll, I'll never forget. Like we've had more than one of those conversations during your journey, during Windrush. And you're like, I just like, I don't know why I'm doing it. Like, you know, why am I putting myself through this to make like no money? You know, yeah. like there's no money happening when you're watching these other people kind of just accelerate in there income and career around you what i would argue is that the acceleration that you had was like massive in your career and your development as you your ability today versus uh someone that just was getting paid you know yeah i mean i think one of the one of the things that took me a while to come to grips with was pretty much right as i, I decided that the business was not going to make it and we we're going to try to figure out how to get aqua hired or whatever 
I had a conversation with my father-in-law who was of the like friends and family investors has put the most money in. He had been really supportive of us through this yeah. whole process. He had really gone to bat in a way that, you know, almost no one else had. And I, you know, I basically like was very upset and I apologized to him, you know, like, look, we failed, uh, you know, I, we tried our best, blah, 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 blah. And he's, I'll never forget. He said to me, well, I would have paid for you to get an MBA. So I just paid for you to get an MBA the other way. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly that's so cool. It. That's right. that's those are the things you need to hear because um, I I had a failed company that was funded. You definitely have your tail between your legs when you have to tell them that we're done. Yeah. Um, but at, like mine had been after a year of not getting any money or income. And I'm just like, dude, I am out. I can't do it anymore. I have to protect myself. And that's after I just like plowed like all hydra hydraulics are gone and I just took the plane right into the ground, you know, like it was like, yeah, we're pretty sure you should stop, you know, like they, they're like, yeah, that's, that's the end. You know, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, what's interesting though, Max, it hit on something. I think that's just a really important thing because I, I see this in, in the, you know, in the venture world a lot now. Um, and I do, you know, my own angel investing plus through a fund and things like that. And, you see businesses that exist for fundraising, like exactly what yeah. you just said, right? Yeah. You see these businesses that really their business is just raising money. And I'll tell you the thing that always shocks me, some of these businesses, I mean, get quite large, right? There's this kind of whole phenomenon. I think one of the things we don't do is invest in like Silicon Valley, like yeah. kind of prototypical Silicon Valley startups, because you see this, you, you see this a lot out there right where you 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 see businesses that just raise and raise and raise and raise and their profile raises and they become perceived as industry leaders and stuff and then you kind of peek one you know eye below the sheet and you're like there's nothing there there's just and they become fundraising stories not business stories right and it's a really really difficult thing when you start to encounter those things because you have, I mean, look, founders are good at different things. Some founders are great at building tech. Some founders are great at, you know, at selling to a target market. Some founders are great at fundraising yeah. and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing, but they end up getting, you know, you see these businesses that just get propped up and they go on and on and on. And there's so much capital lost as a result of it. It really is a hard, hard it's, thing. It's funny. I think that part of the reason that that happens so much more in Silicon Valley, because I've thought about this a lot, because I've seen the same thing that you're talking about. I think part of the reason it happens so much more in Silicon Valley is not necessarily a difference in the character of the startups or the founders coming out of Silicon right. Valley, as much as it is the ability for the VC network in Silicon Valley to create success where there is no success. That's right. You can, like, if if Andreessen Horowitz invests in your company, it is successful regardless of what happens before or after that point, which means that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there's these early stage investors, a few, you know, top tier early stage investors who, you know, if if some sort of less well-known VC invests in a company that is has a really good pitch, but doesn't really have a lot of there there, it, it falls apart pretty quickly. Whereas if you have a really, really good name prop up their first round or whatever, then it just becomes, well, they must know something we don't know because they're, you know, they're winners, right? And they only pick winners. And, and I think I've seen that same thing happen. And it's, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sad to me because, you know, you see a lot of companies, a lot of founders who are very competent and have really solid products and businesses. And I'm not speaking about myself here. <laughs> I'm actually speaking about other people, um, but like who don't get funded to the extent that they should in part because they don't match that paradigm. I mean, one of the things that I've seen a lot is like, if you don't, one of the things that helped me a lot with fundraising was that I kind of, despite all the other issues we had, I kind of looked like the guy that they wanted to write a check to, right? I was sure. like young, mumbly, very tech focused guy wearing a hoodie who could, you know, talk in a way that made people think I was, you know, some weird antisocial boy genius. And that story is more useful than the actual business or anything else that's going on there. <laughs> right. It's like central founder, right? Yeah. I think they they were attracted to like the intelligence level. And well, there's there's other stuff going on there too, sure. right? But like, but like, no. But I've had friends. I mean, it especially affects you know women and minorities yeah. raising money, but also just people right. who who don't fit the like exact right paradigm. There's like certain yeah. like like the, somebody I can't remember who it was, but some VC said something about the reason they gave 
somebody who ended up being total, total fraud. I can't remember who it was, but the reason they gave him so much money is because they looked like a good founder. And that's like yeah. such a, such a obviously problematic way of thinking about right. it. But like, I understand why they do it. VCs see a million companies and they're just trying to like, they just got to get through stuff quickly. So they're picking whatever signal they think they've found and, and latching onto it. I was talking to a VC this weekend and he was saying that like, he, his, he looks for two things. He looks for, does it seem like the, because he's, he's invest pre-seed, so very early. He's like, does it seem like this person has figured out something that other people have not figured out? Like, is he a little bit early to, is he or she a little bit early to some idea or some angle on some idea? And then does their deck look really good? Because, and, and it's funny because I've heard VCs say the opposite, right? Their deck needs, you want the ugliest looking deck because that means they didn't spend any time on it and they just care about their business. But his, his pitch is, building a startup is an exercise in design in all kinds of different ways. And if you can't figure out how to do design, if you don't have the sense of like what is good, then you will fail because you can't convince people that you're serious. You can't convince people like you can't. And I think it's an interesting perspective. Obviously he was a designer previously, so it makes sense. That this is his angle. On it, but <laughs> right. It's, it's I think like, what oh. it is, what, what, what it probably is, is further reinforcement that like early stage investing is like, there's all kinds of theories and every single one of them is complete bullshit. Yeah. Mine completely included in that list. Right. It's, you know, because you don't, it's so much of it comes down to, there are so many factors, right. That are going to influence. You could have a great founder that never like yourself, but they don't find the product market fit um, at the right time. Right. Too early. Yeah. They might be too early. They might be, you know, there's just so many different variables that go into it. Right. And, you know, because the, that, that journey, especially when you're dealing with VC and high growth potential companies, that journey, it's, it's, you know, so much of this is luck too, right? Yeah. So much of this is stumbling upon the right idea at the right time. You got the right, you got the right founder or the founding team. And, and then, you know, you go, right. And you get the right capital behind you. There are so many, there are so many factors that really affect this. You know, it's, it's hard, but you always hear, it's like hiring, right? You always hear those same things. It's like, well, I only hire the person the division one athlete, because they blah, 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 blah. It's all bullshit, right? It's just, it's complete made up bullshit. And the reality is, you know, it's timing, it's luck, it's product market fit. Certainly there's the element of, and I really do love what you just said about, you know, this, this person's take on, did they stumble on, do they have a unique take on a problem? Right. Yeah. I think is a really interesting, is a really interesting way. And I think that that is universally True. Although, you know, with that said, I, you know, have invested in businesses that you really could not tell the difference between them and 20 other companies. Right. Yeah. Um, but they got the right founder they could execute, you know, so there's so many intangibles that go into this. Yeah. Tying back to what you're saying about luck. I think one of the more important things that, that they talked to the, the managing director of the tech program, I went through, like sort of tried to beat into us is like, it's luck, but it's not just luck. Like you, right. um, your job as a startup founder, as an early stage startup founder, late stage, it becomes totally different. But early stage as a startup founder, your job is to do all these really hard things that are each one buys you some scratch off lottery tickets, right? That's right. There's, not, there's no guarantee of return on investment on any of them. Yeah. But if you, you have to do all these things, you have to do them well, you have to do them right, and you have to do them fast. And if you do all that, then you get a big pile of scratch off lottery tickets and hopefully one or two of them pays out and you can keep going. That's right. Um, and, and I think that's a more... It's a nicer way of thinking about it to me because it it really does speak to the luck aspect without being like, yeah. You know, the reason these companies are successful isn't that they're lucky. It's the, the reason they didn't fail is that they're lucky. The reason they're successful is all the hard work that they put in. Because they did the work to yeah, get the scratch right. off. Yeah, that's no, right. That's, and that's a great analogy. It is. It is. I love that. And and you know, so and I, and I think Peter Peter and I have talked about this a million times, right? So much of this just simply comes down to like, if you look at the common denominator, at least that we see where companies just like the wheels start to come off, they're not doing the reps, right? And you look yeah. at anything that you get graded. I don't care if it's, you know, if it's skiing or it's playing tennis or it's, you know, whatever it is, right? It, it's, it's the reps and it's, you can have a really bad strategy yep. and execute it really, really well and do the same thing every single day, right? You see something, Peter, I mean, like you how often have do you bad see software, 
and sell the crap out of it. Right. Well, that's it. Like, right. How many times have we seen complete shit software, right? Where you're like, <laughs> I don't even understand. I, but they I, sell I don't get it. it. They, they, but they're selling they got it. the reps down, man. But they're doing it because they're doing it the same thing, you know, bad software, bad strategy done exactly the same way. Every single day, you're getting the emails out, you're making the calls, you're telling the story, you're telling it 20 times a day. And all of a sudden, like you said, luck. Usually they're really good at selling the vision of what the software is going to be (laughs) the next release. And everyone buys that and waits five years and eventually we have Salesforce. Yeah. 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 Sorry. No, no, that's, that's that was that was what I was thinking of as you were describing that. So, yeah. uh, I mean, when it started, it was tough, man. But they yeah. sold yeah. the crap out of it. I mean, they did an amazing job in all those things. They they, they did, got a bunch of scratch off tickets. They did what worked, founders you know? do, right? They build yeah. into their vision. Like you start out with something that's now not where you want it to world be. World class. You know? And you build into you build into that uh you build into that that vision, right? That you're you never that did that, right, Greg? Over and over. What's up? You never did that before. Uh, no, no, no. I don't do. I don't do those things. I'm. I only sell what I can deliver at that moment. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, other people. I've just heard these stories. Before. Yeah, right. One, so, of, one of the one of the other things that I think that you know, if we're talking about like lessons or takeaways or things like that from this experience, one of the things that I think was a huge one for me that I've only started to really come to grips with more recently is that there's a certain type of like mental fortitude that you need to get through the early stages of a startup. And it's not just being tough or being willing to suffer or whatever. It's really a very specific thing where you just sort of deal with all these bad things happening and you deal with this existential dread that surrounds you as you're trying to build a startup. And I think that because the VC industry tends to bias towards super young people, they get either people that act like that, but it's because, you know, it's like the, the person who's putting themselves in danger because they don't know that they're putting themselves in danger right. not because they're, they're yeah. you know, bold or people that don't, that just don't have the, that down yet. Right. Maybe they will eventually. Like, I think that I've built a lot more resilience over the course of my career, both through that experience and subsequently, but at the time, like it was really, you know, it was really challenging and, you know, people talk about mental yeah. health and stuff like that with startup founders, yeah. but like, it was it was a very rough experience and I didn't have the the battle hardenedness or anything like that. I mean, since that time period, I've gotten really into like rock climbing, mountaineering, stuff like that. And I've started to notice that sometimes now as a you know entrepreneur or whatever, when things are really scary, it's like I draw on the exact same internal reserve, the whole, all right, I cannot fall, but I'm gonna keep moving because that's the, the only way out is through. And I didn't have that yeah. to fall back on. And some of the founders yeah. that I saw that did really well are the ones that did. And usually they were ones who had had something go really badly before, like a very badly failed company or been at some place that went down in flames or whatever. So, yeah. 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 Greg and I talk about it. In fact, we talked about doing this podcast, you know, doing a lot of long runs and like, if you're training for a long run or like, whether it's an Ironman or a marathon, you got to go run and you got to keep doing it. And that grindy thing, you you end up loving doing that like going yeah. through the process right and if you really like doing that and that challenge to try to get to where some some outcome happens that's that's when it becomes more healthy you know yeah uh, later in life and you know i think to go back to that like that startup for the sake of being a startup mentality right which um you don't get that kind of mental fortitude in that world right no. you build the mental fortitude by getting beat up. And, and I think, you, you know, you, you, you made a point, I think jokingly a couple minutes ago, but I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's an important point, right? You give, you give a couple of 20 year olds, a few million dollars. And you said, you know, interesting things start to happen, right? Well, it, they start to happen because you don't, that, that fortitude is not established yet. You don't yep. know, you know, what is, what you don't have that kind of pattern recognition. And, um, you know, and building that fortitude and getting beat up and coming back the next day with that exact perspective that you just said of mountain climbing, you know, that, that analogy to mountain climbing of, well, I can't fail and I can't really climb down. So I kind of just need to keep climbing up. I mean, you know, in my own journey of running my, you know, starting my last company and running it for 13 years, I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many times we were legitimately out of business 
like legitimately out of business. I mean, by any reasonable standard, we, we, we didn't, we were no longer viable. Right. And, but I didn't really have, I didn't have anything to get out of. Right. But you start a, you, you, you start to see that pattern. It's like, okay, I've been, I've been at this point before I've been hanging on the rock with one hand. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know I can't let go. Right. Yeah. And because if I do, it's going to really suck. Right. When I, when I hit the ground and it's, it's a, it's a balancing act on Max, right. It's just such a, it's such an important thing because there is a point that a founder has to let go. Yeah. Right. There is a point, but it, it's, it's you know, hard I, to know. It is. is. It is. And it's I, so hard. And, and for first-time founders, especially young first-time founders, it's really hard to differentiate between the like, this is terrible and we're technically insolvent, but it'll be fine because I understand what, what we're going to do to get out of this and the like irrational exuberance where you just falsely believe that you're going to recover or whatever. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting for me is like before we went to Techstars, we reached a point where we were really desperately low on capital. We were like, operating and we had operating expenses and stuff and we were just not in a good position and we knew we were into tech stars but like you don't get the money up front you get the money when you the program starts right and in that situation we i think correctly judged but it was a really hard choice like hey i think we have a shot here we should try to figure out how to get the capital to get through to there rather than being like well you know tough breaks we're going to but it was only because we had that goal to try to reach right. for that clear clear thing that was going to bail us out if we could just get to it and i, I sort of compare these two moments because there was this moment you know like whatever three months before we started techstars where i was like we are basically out of money but i know that we're going to be into techstars i have all these optimistic things that could happen if we get there and, and can make it work versus the end of the program was like we have capital we just completed techstars all yeah. this that and the other but I know yeah, the company is but I know the company is over, right? I know right. that this is the end of the, the company for me. But Max, it seems like though where you got to, it was that point where you said it's actually over for me. Yes. Right. Like, and I think that's the point, right? Because you can you can survive, like you can have that fortitude when you still legitimately love what you do, right? You yeah. still and and I think for me, that that was the difference for me, right? Because like all of these horrible times, all of these times where we were technically insolvent and only, you know, a person with six brain cells could tell you that, you know, we're, you, you like, you don't really have a business here, but I, you know, didn't have that clearly. And so you keep going where, where it hit for me. And it sounds like it was the same for you was the point at which the chatter in my brain changed to say, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I don't like doing this anymore. This is just a bad job. Yeah. Now. Yep. And I think that's to me when it becomes personal like that as opposed to shit we're not going to make it versus, you know, I don't want to go to work tomorrow because I just don't like this. Like this is not what I want to be doing with my life anymore. I think that's where it changes. And I think that I think that it's funny, but I mean, being able to get through those situations and being able to like recenter and and keep moving forwards is a learned skill. Like I've seen founders that earlier on in their career did not have that, that ability. And then over time through, you know, so, so in mountaineering, people talk about uh, learning to suffer. So suffering is a skill that you need to build. Um, Because if you're going to go climb high altitude mountains, like it is going to be a miserable experience a high percentage of the time. And the only way you get to the top is you go through because that's how it works. And I think that startup founders need to, to some extent, learn to suffer. They yeah, need to learn absolutely. to be able to, there was, there was a really, a really successful founder that I know who was talking about, she literally had a VC meeting, had just had a whole bunch of stuff fall apart, cried in the parking lot cleaned herself up, went in, pitched the VC, went back to her car and like screaming and pounding on the steering wheel. Right. But like, but (laughs) like that level of like ability to hold it together, just the amount that you need to is really good. I think what's challenging is how you balance that with keeping yourself healthy, sane, you know, upholding the bargain with the rest of your family and your loved ones and things like that. But I've met some people now who've gone through that and they've done a really good job of being able to fight through those really tough situations, take it personally, suffer, but 
ultimately know that they're doing it for a reason that they care about. And one of the things that I think helped yeah. me back at that end state of Windrush was that we started to start up to start a startup and we pivoted so much that like, I was like, well, what, what am I even doing? Like, why, right. why do I care about selling things to M&A investment bankers? Like, I, yeah. I don't know anything about M&A investment bankers. Right. And, you know, there was no there there for me to be like, well, at the end of the day, I'm really passionate about what is it we do again? Like, you know, it's like, right. uh, what I'm really am passionate about is making investment bankers far more money because I want, you know, because that's what I truly love has, to do. And has, has anyone ever thought about the poor investment banker? Uh, <laughs> you know, like, the, no, it's, it, it was, you know, and it's not that it's a bad business to be in or anything like that. It's sure. just, it's just yeah. a business that I didn't understand, didn't particularly understand. I mean, I could operate in it, but I didn't understand it very well. I wasn't very interested in it. It wasn't like I had been a junior investment banker and I'd experienced all this annoying right. stuff and I wanted to fix it. Right. It was like, I did a bunch of customer interviews and I formulated a thesis and I was trying to like validate it. And that's not a bad way to run a business, but it's like, no. it's not a great way to, because someone described starting a startup as it's less like, um, less like starting a business and more like having a kid, like, cause you don't yeah. have a lot of control over the outcome in some respects, <laughs> yeah. but you're going to pour your heart and soul into it. And it's going to consume yeah. your entire yeah. life. And so to me, it's like, you're starting a business. Great. Do a lot of research, figure out what the you know good market is, sell stuff to them. Awesome. Building a startup where you're going to basically sacrifice years of your life and pour your heart and soul into it, I, you know, it kind of has to be something that you're irrationally excited about, or at some point you're going to be standing in the parking lot and you're just going to not, you're just not going to go inside and, and pitch the VC. You're just going to right. say, fuck it and walk away. So right. totally. that's exactly uh, how you describe Piton Labs. I mean, when you describe what you're doing now, yeah, it's something you really care about to the point where you're actually helping a company and then you're cutting off your revenue because you're, 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 you're letting them go on their own, which is just really cool. So yeah. those yeah. are the ones that are most successful, but, it, but it's also fun. <laughs> right. Well, that's right. it. Right. That's the thing. It's <clears> fun to you, but right. to the, to who you're helping, they're like, this is the most not fun part <laughs> of my business. I hate it. I don't understand it. And to your point before, like a lot of times what those founders do is fall back on what they know. And it's not doing that part. And then that part fails miserably. Right. Yeah. So this right. Is, this is a super needed area uh, for for you to fail. So we we need to start wrapping up. But Max, you 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 know you've now sort of pivoted into into Piton and building this business now. But you know I know we were talking uh, before we before we started recording here. You know, really interesting business. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, kind of the 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 sort of the perfect lifestyle business in terms of what you're doing. You know, digital nomading. <laughs> you know, where, uh, where are you going to be? Where can people find you? I know uh, you and I may cross paths in, uh, in Portugal in our, our little digital nomad, uh, <laughs> nomad experiences. And uh, talk a little bit about that. Where can people find you if they want to get in contact with it? Yeah. So um, I've been posting a lot of stuff on LinkedIn and, and stuff like that. So if you want to digitally reach me, that's a good place or, or e shoot me an email. Um, I'm sure you can put contact information or whatever yeah. on the podcast or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I live in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is a tiny little town, uh, which, you know, we all have affiliation with some of us less, less currently than others. <laughs> One of the reasons I built Piton Labs the way I did and built a lifestyle business after going through the VC backed startup thing, where people sort of sneeringly say lifestyle business is that I have always really loved to travel. I've loved to yep. hike, rock climb, mountain bike, all this stuff. And I wanted to build the kind of business where I could just do that the way I wanted to. And so I would say I spend about six months of the year in Saratoga Springs, maybe a little bit less than that. And the rest of the year, wherever else and wherever else ranges from like up in the beautiful Adirondacks in New York state, very close by to, you know, Patagonia and Argentina, where I was a couple of months ago. Uh, I'm going to Spain to go rock climbing next week. That's an actual vacation. Normally I'm actually working in these places, but they're yeah. actually just going. I could to tell that was a vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Was, um, I'm but, always, I always, when I talk to Max, I'm like, where are you? No, don't tell me where you are. I'd rather not know. <laughs> yeah. And it's um, not nomading. So I've been to like, my wife and I have been to 36 countries. And, you know, so, some of the ones that everybody goes to, you know, we've been to Spain, we've been to Italy, you know, that kind of stuff. We've also been to like Argentina, Uruguay, Georgia, the Republic of, not the, uh, not the Southern state, although we've also been to the Southern state you know, just really all over the world. And it's something that really, uh, I am really passionate about. And it also, you know, 
I can do my job just as well, regardless of where I'm typing into the computer as, as somebody else. There are places that are a time zone slightly too far. So I have to, have to sort of control those. But, you know, even during COVID, when things were super locked down, my wife and I bought a, a vintage Airstream trailer and we drove around the country, we went to, uh, we went to, I don't remember exactly the number. We, we've been, we've camped in every state except for six, I think at this point. And one of them is Hawaii, which I'm not sure the logistics of getting the trailer there. Alaska, we'll get to eventually. <laughs> Hawaii, I think might be too hard. Yeah. And, and we took our cat with us during COVID because we were gone for almost a year. And so we, uh, our cat has been to 38 U.S. states and five Canadian provinces against her will. Um, and she's only set foot in Michigan, Maine, and Florida, where she escaped the trailer. But um, oh, yes. <laughs> there's video of her somewhere like we're parked at the, uh, if you've ever been in Canadian Rockies, there's this thing called the Icefields Parkway. It drives yeah. past all these glaciers. We're parked. We've got the trailer. We've got the truck. We've got the cat sitting in a cat box on the tonneau of the truck with like an, an, the Columbia ice field behind her. And she just looks so mad. <laughs> Didn't enjoy cat, it as much as you Cats did, are really not known for their like desire to travel. And they're really not known to, for anything. She wanted to go live in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, but uh, <laughs> we, were able to, we were able to catch her before that happened or before whatever a wolf got to her. I don't That's know, right. Yeah, Mount Lion decides to take her I out. Think Thank you so much for sharing your journey. This is like amazingly helpful to other founders that have gone through it that know they're not the only ones. And yeah, uh, if the ones starting out, it's, you know, obviously it's not easy, uh, but you learn a lot. And if you come out like Max, uh, you, you're really successful. And, so. and that's a big part of the value that I find in the the stuff that I do now, right? Is that it's, it's, it's fun partly because it's fun, but it's fun partly because I get to give people the advice that I wish I say, I wish someone had given me, uh, I wish I'd yeah. listened to when someone had given me, I guess, but either way. <laughs> yep. Cool. Well, it's, it's great, Max. Really, uh, really enjoyed, you know, the conversation having you on the uh, podcast today. I know, uh, I know, you know, this conversation is going to, you know, resonate with a lot of people going through a lot of the similar stuff. So, uh, so really appreciate awesome. you doing it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully I see you in Portugal in a few weeks. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. All right. All right, Max. Thanks for coming. Cheers. Thanks. Bye.